know, as I said, this is the last message in the series, Till I Met You, and the series revolves around the idea that each of our lives is a story. When you read the Bible, one of the interesting things you find is that a lot of it is God himself recording the stories of ordinary, imperfect human beings through the lens of his, his affection and redemptive love. And so you have a story, you are a story, I am a story, and each of our life stories is meant to have a particular chapter where we meet our creator. Um, I'm telling you, I don't want to get crazy emotional, but when I think back uh, of my, in my life in 1973, when I met Christ, became his follower, everything, everything that has any meaning or value at all in me as a human being and in my life it's, it's there. I am not. You are not the person that we are after we meet our creator in a relationship of trust. You become someone different. There's a different dynamic. You were always meant to be one that carried your creator within you. I was always meant. And when that occurs, when we put our trust in him, become his follower, you become this, this beautiful person that you were always meant to be with tremendous developmental potential. But until that part of our story where we reconnect, authentically reconnect with our creator, we're not talking about formulaic Christianity here. We're talking about a time in a human being's life where they say, all things considered, I am going to put my trust in Christ, my creator, the one that loved me enough to die on the cross sacrificially for me. I'm going to trust him, I'm going to follow him fully, and I'm going to follow him freely, and I'm going to follow him forever. When that happens, you become somebody more than what you and I can ever become when it's just us. We were always meant. A verse that I've looked at in this series, this entire series from the New Testament book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ living in the city of Colossae. He's speaking about Christ. If you were to read the verses that go before, he says, For by him were all things created which are in heaven and which are in earth, Things visible and invisible. Think of that. You know, the, the, the atoms themselves. Jesus created atoms. Visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This is talking about angelic civilizations and governmental structures. So if you ask the question, is there other life in the universe besides human life? Absolutely. The Bible has taught it all, all the time. But they're generically called angels. He says, all things were created by him, meaning Christ. And what is the next one? This is the, the most important part for him. You were made not just by Christ, but for him. You cannot be, I cannot be who I was meant to be until I'm in that trusting relationship with Christ my creator. I was made for him. My, the home of my heart, it's in him. It's when I walk through life every day with the certainty of his presence that I become fully human, fully alive. I become the Randy that I was meant to be. You become the you you were meant to be. Apart from him, Jesus said it in John 15, apart from him, we can really do nothing. It goes on to say, Christ existed before all things and in union with him. All things have their proper place. My life finds proper place. I find order and harmony, meaning when I'm in union with Christ, with his word, with his will, living according to his ways. Each week, I've urged us in here as a, as a church family, as a group, to take this opportunity and write out our stories. To, to take the time and, and divide it up. We gave you a nice little outline. What was my life before Christ, before I became a follower of Christ? How did I come to trust in Christ? 
and then my life since trusting in Christ. And each week I've asked, you know, how many have done that? And it's been a cool thing. Every week we've gotten more and more of these stories in. But each week I've asked this question. This will be the last time you get to feel guilty or happy. How many of you have still not written out your story? Can I see your hand? Hold them high. Own the guilt. Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. For those that did send their stories in, and each week it's been so neat, uh, you can just, you can feel the excitement in the stories. Something happens when you take the time, I take the time to sit down and write out these stories of the activity of God in our life, and now it's concrete, it's real, it's powerful, it's tangible. If I can't write it, I probably wouldn't be able to tell it to someone else. But once you do it, it not only solidifies your own spiritual experience and your own spiritual history, but you have a powerful tool that just might help another person reconnect with Christ their creator. All these stories we read in the scripture, they are people's stories that have helped thousands and hundreds of thousands come to trust in Christ, reconnect with their creator. Your story's powerful. I'm going to make one last plea. Please, please do two things. Take the time to write out your story. Second thing, start praying that God will give you just the right time, just the right person to share your story with. And, and then just give God a chance to work. That's my plea with you. Okay, the message today, till I met you, I was so hopeless. Um, maybe some of you can kind of own that. Maybe you can look back in your history before you became a Christ follower. And maybe hopelessness is what really described best the, the whole feel of your life. We're going to ultimately meet a lady here who came head along to the limitations of what we can hope for from other human beings. In this temporal world we live in, there's a limit to what we can realistically hope for. She hit that limit where it was impossible for humankind to help her in her situation. And in her case, it led her to find hope in God. So why don't we go ahead and, um, but, well, before I, before I turn you to a passage of scripture, let me, uh, let me share a couple quotes with you about hope. Here's one from a guy named uh, theologian from the past, Emil Bruner. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. Uh, hope is such a part of the human experience that we rarely even think about it. I, I mean, you think about it. Okay, so you went to sleep last night, and some of you set an alarm clock. And, but in any case, you went to sleep with a hope. It might have been unconscious because we hope all the time. It's such a normal part. But you hoped that you would wake up this morning, and look, you did it. You, you did it. You, you're going to go to your restaurant, some of you, you got your, your, your Sunday after church restaurant, and you're going to order your thing, you know, whatever your thing is, and you have hopes that it's going to taste the way it normally tastes to you. You know, we have all kinds of hopes. You get in your car, you hope it's going to start. You hit, hit your brakes, you hope it's going to stop. You get beside that big tractor trailer beside you, you're hoping he's not going to come over in your lane, right? We, we hope all the time. And it's so natural to hope, we live by hope as human beings, that we rarely recognize it, we rarely think about it until something disrupts it. It's kind of like breathing. You're hoping you're going to keep breathing right now. I had an experience this week, a very humbling, a very embarrassing experience about breathing, something that we take for granted. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to have some surgery done on my shoulder. I was supposed to have surgery done on my shoulder this Thursday. Of course, when you're going to get surgery, they have to, you have to see a million doctors and go through things. And one of the things with me at my stage in life, my age, you know, they want to check your heart, make sure, you know, before they put you to sleep that the blood's going to be open and all like that. So I, I've had a problem throughout my life. I'm a little bit claustrophobic. How many can identify with that? 
And I'm particularly claustrophobic with anything that makes me feel like I'm not going to be able to breathe. You, you know, I, I start panicking. It's really embarrassing, really humiliating. Just who I am. Um, so I had to do the stress test. And so, you know, they wire you all up and everything. And I'm, I'm in good shape, man. I'm in the gym five days a week, been doing it for 29 years, eat clean, good shape, and all like that. But I knew this was not going to go well because this pressure, man, you know, they're, they're going to bring you right to your limit. When I'm in the gym, I do what I want to do. I don't push myself to that limit. <laughs> No, you won't find Randy Danny huffing and puffing in the gym. Randy Danny's having a good time. <laughs> Even when I'm riding a stationary bike reading a book, I'm just kind of cruising. So I'm like, oh, man, I know this is not going to go well, but I'm going to try. So I get on this thing, and, you know, they're, they're like cheerleaders. Oh, look, you're doing so good. You know, I'm going faster and faster. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm cruising. And, uh, oh, look, your heart healthy. You know, it's getting up. And, and he says, okay, but you still got to go, you know, up to this level. Well, when I started getting that level, I'm like, oh, it's getting harder to breathe. It's not, it's not comfortable anymore. And something goes off in my brain, man. I just go, it's embarrassing. I just go into panic mode. I said, that's it, man. I'm not going any further. And they're like, no, no, you can't do this. We've got to get, I, I can't do it. So he said, okay, Mr. Goldenberg, it's okay. We, we have something we can do for you. We're going to sit you down here now, and we're going to inject you with this stuff. And don't worry. It'll just be a very small amount of time, but it'll do the same thing. I said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to inject me to stuff, and it's going to make me feel like I'm suffocating. Like, like, there's a yes, yes, but it's not going to be long. I said, well, how long? He said, oh, a minute to three minutes. I'm like, are you kidding? When you've got claustrophobic panic about breathing like me, a minute to three minutes, it just well said eternity. You're going to just be suffering, you know, trying to catch your next breath for eternity. I said, no way, man, we can't do this. So that canceled my surgery. So they said, okay, okay, Mr. Goldenberg, what we're going to do is this. We're going to get your doctor to bring you back and give you a Valium. <laughs> and I said, I think that might work. <laughs> so I'm hoping, I'm hoping, you know, if I can get myself through it without panicking this week, um, then I'm off to the surgery, if not this Thursday, maybe next week, the week after that, anyway. So if you guys don't see me for two or three weeks in here, it's because they tell me that once you get surgery uh, on your shoulder, you're not much for a couple weeks, at least two to three weeks. So anyway, I'll, I'll be alive and well, just not here. So we hope for our next breath, and we take it for granted. We live on hope, and it's such a part of the human species that we rarely even recognize it or think about it. And they did a study on uh, the uprise in suicide. We were having a tremendous upswing in suicides. And uh, this particular guy, Aaron Cariarty, a psychiatrist, said this after a study. Over a 10-year span, it turns out that the one factor most strongly predictive of suicide is not how sick the person is, nor how many symptoms he exhibits, nor how much physical pain he is suffering, nor whether he is rich or poor, the most dangerous factor is a person's sense of what? Hopelessness. I'm going to tell you something. Any 24-hour period can bring anyone to a place of hopelessness. We're, we're really pretty fragile creatures. The most dangerous factor is a person's sense of hopelessness. The man without hope is the likeliest candidate for suicide. We cannot live without hope. We can't. It's hardwired into us. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as the message goes on. But let's go ahead and let's take a look at a portion of Scripture, and we're going to see a lady that was losing her hope in mankind and what it could do, but she was finding or about to find hope in God because of it. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. 
And that'll be page 1137 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair. Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Everybody's thinking, what a wimp that guy is. <laughs> you wouldn't be far wrong. It's okay. <laughs> Mark chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 25. And we'll find a woman who had lost hope in man. But it was a good thing. Sometimes, folks, it's a good thing to lose hope in ourselves and in what, what mankind can produce because it leads us to the truth that we need God in our lives. Starts out in verse 25, it says, Now, a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, pause for a moment, how did she hear about Jesus? People telling their stories. Hey, there's this new teacher, there's this new rabbi, and he's different. He shows us that God's forgiving, that God's loving, that he cares about all of us. He heals us of things that nobody else has been able to heal us of. He does miracles that no one but God himself can do. Come see, come see. How did she hear? People telling their stories. Folks, one more plea. When you tell your simple story, what my life was like before Christ, how I came to Christ, what my life has been like since, trust me, the spirit of the living God will take that and fill it full of power. And not everyone, but some people's lives just might be eternally changed because of it. Okay, so she heard. She comes to Jesus because she had heard about him. Verse uh, 27, let me pick up on it again. She came behind him in the crowd. And she touched his cloak, for she kept saying, if only I touch his clothes, I will be healed. She had so much confidence of God's presence and power in Jesus that she, and his goodness and willingness to heal, that just a touch. At once, verse 29, the bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus knew at once that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd, and he said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, who touched me? But he looked around to see who had done it. Then the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had, what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith or your trust, same word, same Greek word, your faith, your trust, your confidence, your reliance has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It's a simple and a beautiful story. She had spent all that she had trying to get what humanity could provide to heal her inner problem, and she had gotten worse, not better. She had hoped in what humanity could provide, but it didn't work, and that, that hopelessness, that wall that she hit, it led her to seek out Jesus because she had heard there's someone, it seems that God is present in this person, and he is able to do things and give hope to people who are altogether all all otherwise hopeless. So again, it's a simple and beautiful story. Now, I, I, would, be, I would be wrong if I didn't uh, kind of expand on this a bit so that we have realistic expectations. Jesus healed like no one had ever healed before him or since him. 
You say, Randy, but the apostles did some healings. Yes, they were few and they were wide apart. No one has done the number and the type of healings that Jesus did. Why? Because this was, this was a huge event. God became man and gave a full revelation of himself in Jesus. And so the marks that this was God's intervention in humanity were the miraculous uh, healings that Jesus did. They showed that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the, the God one that we can trust in. But here's where I'm going with this. This lady got healed of this hemorrhage. It had bothered her for 12 years. Her life had to be incredibly hard, and she got healed. It's a wonderful story. She prayed or asked for her healing, and just, just this touch, and she got it. But while Jesus was on earth healing the multitudes of people, how many other people lived on earth during that time? Do we know? We're not sure. There were in the millions, though. We know that. Do you know that those other millions, even though Jesus, God fully present, ready to heal, they went through their lives still under their diseases, still suffering, still dying. Let's, let's just smart, smart, make it a little bit smaller than that. If, if you weren't in the same city that Jesus was in, the same village that Jesus was in, you did not get healed. So listen, we sometimes, teachers today sometimes, take these passages and wrongly, wrongly interpret them, giving people false hope that instead of building their faith, destroys their faith, saying that, oh, see, Jesus is still the miracle-working God, and he can heal you of anything, anytime, and all you have to do is pray and ask and touch his cloak in faith, and, you know, you're going to be healed. Listen, many people were sick in Jesus' day that didn't get healed. Most of the people alive in Jesus' day did not get healed. This was a one-time event to show that when God's kingdom is on earth ruling, there's no such thing as disease. There's no such thing as death. Jesus rose people from the dead too, but not everybody was raised from the dead. So when you and I get sick or ill, and I want to be very practical and clear on this, of course we should pray and seek God's healing. And my experience has been to this point, most times he answers. But he doesn't always answer. And that does not shake my faith, nor should it shake yours. It just means that I have to learn to trust God in a different venture, one that I would not have chosen. Listen, listen, when we pray, God has three ways of answering. Sometimes he says yes, and we get what we want, and it's clear we got the exact answer. Sometimes he says wait, so he hasn't said no, he just says wait. Maybe we need time to develop and grow before he can give us whatever it is we're asking for. And then sometimes he says no. And no is a faith-building experience as well as is yes. I just need to learn to trust him in the no. And now he's going to walk through this with me. He's never going to leave me, never going to forsake me. And he must have some kind of a purpose that for this short life that I'm going to live anyway, he wants to demonstrate something else in my life, through my life, to develop my character and maybe to bless somebody else. So don't let these passages like this throw you in to confusion where we think that everybody ought to be healed all the time. That has not ever been the plan of God. It will be when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Jesus was giving a small demonstration of what the kingdom, the rule of God brings when it's full. Okay, I have to do that because today people get misled by some of these clowns on TV and some of these charlatans, you know, that line up these stadiums and just take people's money. And Anyway, you don't need to hear all that. So, <laughs> so, she goes from being hopeless to finding hope in God. And that's why I said earlier, sometimes when we hit the wall and it becomes hopeless in our life, and I hate that feeling, and I know you hate that feeling, when you just know it's not going to happen, the thing that you wanted, it's not going to happen, and nothing can make it happen. It is a terrible feeling, but it is a feeling that is full of energy, and if we let that energy just push us toward Christ, 
it can be the best thing that ever happened. That's what happened with this woman. Her hopelessness pushed her to find hope in God. Now, we don't know what happened to this woman after this. We don't know if her life was easy or hard. <laughs> it could have been very hard. We don't know. The only thing we know is she went to a place of being healthy. We do know also she died. And so we don't want to glamorize this thing out of, out of its proportion. You know, she still lived a, a regular life like the rest of us. So when we feel hopeless or at our limits to what humankind can pre present or provide for us, this is an invitation to seek hope from God. There's one limitation that humanity has, at least at this point. The transhumanists are trying to change this. How many of you ever heard of the transhumanist movement? Can I see your hands? Okay, some of you know. If you don't know what it is, go look online. There, there are people that are alive right now, very intelligent people, a lot of money. They believe that by 19, or, or 20, 20, 2030 or 2040, maybe 2050, we will hit something called the singularity. Essentially, it means this. Man will be able to live eternally. We'll be able to heal every disease. We'll be able to restore body parts. Uh, cybernetically in all these kind of ways. Th these are real deal people with billions of dollars. Ray Kurzweil is one of them, brilliant guy. Uh, so they're trying to become immortal apart from God. It's not going to happen, you know, because we can't stop killing each other. But anyway, here, here's, <laughs> here's the passage of Scripture. shows the limitations of human hope. The psalmist, David, he says, everyone knows that even the wisest ones die. It doesn't matter how smart a person is, they're going to die. N nobody gets out of that one. Perishing together with the foolish and the stupid, for all die. Beggars, kings, fools, and wise men. Their wealth remains behind for others. No one, regardless of how rich or important, can live forever. Even though the transhumanists think that's attainable. He is just like the animals that perish and decay. This is the destiny of the foolish souls who have faith only where? In themselves. This will be the end of those happy to follow in their ways. There's others that will follow in their ways. So David presents to us the, the limitation of human hope. We die. It ruins everything. It spoils the party. It, it, it just makes the whole thing feel meaningless and purposeless. And we're so vulnerable. It, it hits the young. It hits the old. It hits everybody in between. We don't know when it's going to happen. We just know that it's going to happen. So it's a difficult thing. There's a guy named Jerry Oppenheimer, and he wrote a book called Crazy Rich. Is there anybody in here that's crazy rich? <laughs> Maybe just crazy. No, I don't want to know. <laughs> but uh, in the book, he traces the, uh, the, the sad generational tale of the Johnson family. How many of you use Johnson baby powder? You with me now? Okay. You know, and they have a lot of products, the Johnson & Johnson Company. These people are so rich, they're crazy rich, evidently, for four generations. And in the, in the book, he traces how these are horrible people, all of them, virtually all of them, terrible, terrible people, full of excess and, and all kind of abominations and addictions, and they're, they're just awful. And yet they're, they're crazy rich. Well, one of them, Robert, uh, Robert Jr. Um, Johnson, here's his last words, or Robert Wood Johnson Jr., I have millions, and I would give everything I have if someone could, what, make me well. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how powerful you are. Death comes knocking on the door. We all become very frail, very vulnerable. And we realize sometimes too late, I need something, maybe of someone, that in his case it appears he ignored all his life. Let me read you a story, or part of a story, and I'm going to read you a little bit more of it later in the message from one of our own here at FCF. The story starts off, I was the epitome of hopeless. I had no hope, 
and there was no hope for me. I lived in constant paralyzing fear, fear that began around age six, when for the first time my little world was shattered by this thing called death. Six-year-olds aren't supposed to witness their young, close loved one be overtaken by disease. They aren't supposed to watch them suffer and disintegrate right before their eyes until they are no more, until they are just gone. Death was no stranger to my family. By the age of 16, it had stolen some of the most precious people in my life. I actually anticipated it every few years. I remember thinking, yikes, it's been two years since we've received a tragic phone call or a bad doctor's report, so I better brace myself. Something bad is going to happen soon. This was absolute torture. What does any of it mean? Everything just seems so meaningless. For a long time, I never found satisfying answers to my questions, and I never found hope for my hopelessness. So I tried finding ways to ease the pain. Alcohol became quite the commodity. Feeling hopeless? Just drink a little to escape the pain for a bit. And it worked for a while until I had to drink more and more to find the sense of carelessness and release from the pain that my heart was craving. And I'll stop there and pick back up a little later on. So here's a person hitting the wall of hopelessness. Um, you can escape it. You can cope with it in various human ways. Let me suggest a few that perhaps some of us in here have tried. When we face hopelessness in any area of life, sometimes we respond with depression. We just cave in. We give up. We wave the white flag. We may drift toward taking our life. That's one way we cope with hopelessness. We also sometimes become very angry people, very bitter people, very cynical people, perhaps even violent people. It's a distraction. And then, like this particular person, sometimes we find ways to synthetically alter our mood, whether it's through alcohol or drugs or, or spending addictions or all kinds of addictions. We're just trying to alter our mood inside to, to keep the pain that comes from feeling this situation, my situation is hopeless. But there's a better way. It's the way of this woman. Even if you've got to fight through a crowd to get to Jesus, it's an interesting thing. It was the crowd that drew the woman to Jesus, but then she had to fight through the crowd. How many have ever experienced this? You know, you know there's these places called churches, but then you get into these places and sometimes you meet people that block your way to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? They're supposed to help you find Jesus, but sometimes their behavior is so doggone ugly, they block your way. But that's not here at FCF. <laughs> And I mean it seriously. This has been a, this has been a grace-oriented church for uh, 26 years that we've been around. And I, and I got to say, a, a incredible source of healing to a very broken soul up here. So I, I thank you for that. So hopelessness, it's not just something then. Uh, it's something now. It's nothing to be ashamed of. If you're caught in one of those cycles right now where it's something that you wanted, you're hoping for it. And sometimes we confuse hope with just whimsical thinking, you know, oh, I wish that things will go great tomorrow, but, but it's a little more substantive than that. And it does beg the question, like, why are we like this? Why, why are we so driven by hope? I mean, why do, we, why do we need something to hope for to stay motivated and, and to have some sense of energy and joy? Why is it that when we become hopeless, we, we just start to dismantle and curl up and, and get angry and do all these things? Why, where does this come from, in other words? Why are we so hope-driven? I mean, it seems like, it seems to me like, somehow we have this image buried inside of us somewhere 
of this ideal existence. And our hopes are uh, a manifestation of this image. We have this image, it's never clear, but we kind of have this ideal happy life. Every day's a good day, the next day's better than that one. Every relationship is a great relationship, and you know, they get deep and they get wonderful, and everything is smooth, and you know, we're healthy and we're wealthy and we're wise and we're attractive and we're popular. And, but we kind of have this image of, of this ideal life, and of course, we adjust it as we go along. We say, okay, that's not very realistic, but it's still there to some measure, and our hopes are the manifestation of this interior vision, if you want to call it, intuition, I'm not sure what to call it, of this, this life, this life that we don't see anywhere in human history. I mean, if we're honest about it, we can't find anywhere in human history where people had this ideal golden age life. Uh, it's mythological at best. So where does this come from? Because it drives us as humans it drives us to despair it drives us to heights where does it come from well I, I think the answer is pretty clear right in the beginning of the bible where it says you know that god made us in his own image and we read that verse at the beginning of the message we were made by christ and for christ listen ecclesiastes it says that eternity has been placed in our hearts because we're made in god's image we have an image a faint image a foggy image maybe distorted of his kingdom and the kind of life we were meant to have. It was really meant to be good. This is really tragically, sadly abnormal what we live with. But we rarely, we rarely dare to think that way because we, we, we say, oh, that's being unrealistic. That's being childish. That's being silly to, to, to think of these things, this beautiful ideal world where everybody's loved, everybody's accepted, everybody's respected, everybody has all they need all the time, where everybody is safe no matter where they go. We say, why, why think of those things? They're not realistic, so we suppress them because if you let them rise, they bring you to a place of hopelessness because there's no indication that any society has ever brought forth such a lifestyle. But if you look at Jesus and that three and a half year anomaly in human history where God's life was expressed on this planet and his power was released to do all the good that he wants to do, we see, no, this existence could be, there could be a world where there's no sin, sorrow, sickness, pain, and death, no more hatred, no more disrespect, none of the things that we breathe and live with and accept as normal, they, they do not have to exist. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection promises they will not exist. This is temporary. And so we're... We're forced to, to surface these uncomfortable desires because they seem so unrealistic, but then we've got to point them in a direction that makes us wait. How many of you in here, when you go to a restaurant somewhere in Frederick, you're hoping that you have to stand in line for at least a half hour? Can I just see your hands? <laughs> Is there, he does. <laughs> Is there anybody here that you love waiting on stuff, man? It, you, you just, you, you look forward to waiting. Can I just see the hands of anybody? No. But what if we just changed waiting into something a little different? Let's go back to that restaurant again. Okay, so you're standing there, and, and the man says, well, it's going to be 20 minutes. So you go, okay, because of why? You're anticipating what that favorite dish of yours is going to taste like, right? You, you've had it before. You know it's going to be delicious. And so you're anticipating, you're, some of you, your stomach is growling right now. You're, you're going to fly out of here when this service is over and you're going to go get to eat somewhere. But what happened, that unpleasant, following that, that unpleasant experience of waiting, you turned it into a pleasant experience, an energizing experience called anticipation. 
you knew the stake was there. <laughs> you just had to wait for it. That's all. You and I are meant to hope on things that are certain, not things that are uncertain. We're to accept some uncertainty in this time of human development where we're learning to trust God and we're growing to be more Christ-like and learning how to serve and to love and to give and all these things. We have to accept some uncertainty. So we have to put our hope, though, where there are certainties, certainties like there's a day coming where God's kingdom in all of its fullness will be here and there will be none of these things, these negative things that we talked about. If I put my hope there and I start anticipating these things, the waiting doesn't feel so bad the waiting kind of feels good and, and let me let me go a step further how many in here you just love the thought of getting older can I see your hands you just love it you're just so look you are thrilled with the notion of getting older can I see your hands <laughs> that is not a popular American idea at all is it but let me show you how to switch that around what if getting older means I'm getting closer to my home I really am. I'm getting closer to my home. I'm not, I'm not leaving anything behind. This is not my home. I'm getting closer to my home as I age. All of a sudden, age becomes something not so terrible to resist or to feel bad about. So this notion of waiting and finding hope in God. Let me go back to that Psalm 49 where David started talking about the limitations of human hope with death. But then he gets on the other side. He says, but God will reach into the what? into the grave, there's no limitations with him, and save my life from its power. He will fetch me and take me into his what? Listen, either there is an eternal home that Jesus rising from the dead proves and promises or there's not. There's either pie in the sky by and by or there's not. Some people say, oh, those heavenly-minded people are no earthly good. I've lived long enough to know, know enough about history to know that is an erroneous statement. The most heavenly-minded people that have ever lived are always the most earthly good. They are the ones serving. They are the ones giving. They are the ones living selflessly day in and day out. Why? Because they know they know Jesus rose and they will rise too, and they're counting on it. Man, I'm not, I'm not traveling to Israel now. People always tell me, Randy, go to Israel. I'm like, what do I want to go to Israel for? Get shot or have a plane crash or have a terrorist blow me up. No, 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 no. I'm going to go to Israel when I can fly on my own power and Jesus is on earth. I can see Israel all I want then. People talk about, oh, you got to have your bucket list. What do I need a bucket list for? I'm going to live forever, man. I'm not, I'm not in some panic about bucket list. I mean, really. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm being sincere, folks. This is the way Christians are meant to think and to live. Our values are meant to shift. And we don't live with this desperation to get it all now, man, while you can. You know, because you only go around once. Nonsense. Nonsense. So, they found in a study something interesting about the effect of believing, trusting in a caring God. Uh, share this with you. A study by Rush University Medical Center in Chicago found that belief in a concerned God can improve response to medical treatment in patients diagnosed with clinical depression. Depression, sometimes biochemical, but more than often it's when a person hits hopelessness at some point in their life. But they found that if a person, these are hardcore psychiatric people, they found that if a person has a belief in a concerned or caring God, 75% of those folks got healing 
got better from depression than those that didn't have a belief in a concerned, caring God. Your image of God is so important. Jesus is that image of God. He is loving. He is caring. He is accepting. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. He is unshockable. His love is unstoppable. You cannot frustrate his patience. He is always, always there for you, always for you, never against you. And all you and I have to do is make ourselves teachable, humble, and available to his grace. I'm going to go back to that story of one of our folks. You saw the first part where they were living before Christ, and now let's bridge to where they came to Christ and then after. This person picks up and says, it wasn't until my affair with alcohol led me to, uh, excuse me, led me to almost face death myself that I began to see my heartache and brokenness was not something that could be healed by anything in this world. There was a need in me so deep, a brokenness so severe, a hopelessness tormenting that nothing in this world could fix. The person goes on. My life, here's, here's the power of the story. My life is living proof that Jesus is still working miracles of restoration in the lives of his broken, lost, hurting, and hopeless sheep. He didn't say a word and make all my pain and brokenness go away instantly. No, he drew me close through his indwelt people, talking about Christians, Christ followers, indwelt by the presence of the Spirit of God. He drew me close through his indwelt people who carried his hope and his truth. These people who carried Hope himself, that's the person's word for Jesus. He offered me the hope my soul longed for. He offered me the only hope that could heal my broken heart and mind and give me real purpose and meaning. This hope gave me a reason to live. Now don't get me wrong, it hasn't been easy. These past five and a half years from the time I found hope, it's been an ongoing battle to cling to that hope. But hope himself, the person's talking about Jesus, hope himself never lets me go. I too now carry this hope in hopes to share it with others who feel the despair of hopelessness. I want nothing less than for every human being to meet the same hope. Same hope to save my life. The only sufficient, the only sufficient true hope any of us will ever have. This is a hard series for me. I've tried to hold my emotions together all through it. Uh, this, this is it, at age 23, you can't imagine who I was. And, and, and this person called Jesus, he did save my life. He is saving my life. I know the good he brings to the life of those who open themselves to him. And if that's not a part of your story, I so hope, I so hope even before this day is over, you will make it a part of your story. I want to close with just reading a portion of scripture and asking you a few questions. This is from the last book of the Bible, the next to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Here's where our hope needs to be anchored. The apostle John, he was the last living apostle at that time. He was on an isle called Patmos in the exile because of his faithfulness to Jesus. He had this vision. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist and the sea existed no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every, 
every tear. Think of, think of the tears you've cried and what the source was. Every tear from their eyes. And death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. And the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, write it down because these words are reliable and they are true. Thought about this passage and a lot of things came to my mind. Here's, here's my hope. I want to be there. And I want to be able to look in your faces. I want to be able to look in your eyes. When that pain, that torment that you have not been able to overcome all your life long, that fear maybe for some of you, that anxiety, that stress, that insecurity, those feelings of inferiority, those feelings of being unlovable or unlikable, whatever it is, those feelings of failure, of being stained, of being guilty, of being shamed, those feelings of, of some horrible event that occurred to you or that you were involved in, whatever that source of pain is, that loss of love or a loved one, I, I, want, I want to be there. This really is my hope. I want to see your face. I want to see your eyes. I want to see it when God wipes away your tears and, and mine. I live for this. My prayers these days more and more is, oh, Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done. How desperately we need you on this planet. Folks, if you, don't, if you have eyes to see, we're, we're on the edge of entering into a very difficult time on this planet. And we so need, we so need this hope that is unshakable. It will give us anticipation of what is coming. And what is coming is the fullness of God's kingdom in the return of Jesus. Now let me ask a couple questions. If hopelessness has been an issue in your life or is an issue in your life, how have you been trying to cope with it? Because if you're still trying to find some human coping system, I can promise you it's not going to serve you well. It's not, it's not going to develop your soul to be the beautiful person God will help you to be if you'll find your hope in him. So do you need to just maybe turn the focus of your hope authentically toward Jesus and him and him alone? Secondly, maybe some of us are having a struggle with learning how to live with this imperfect world and the imperfect hopes that sometimes they're fulfilled and sometimes they're not and learning to anchor our anticipatory focus on the things that are certain, this, this day that's coming, a new heaven, a new earth, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more hatred, no more prejudice, no more war, no more fear. You walk anywhere and be loved and known and respected and belong. That's our certainty in Christ. And maybe, maybe you're struggling to balance out the temporal hopes with the eternal hopes. And, and you need God's help to just learn to do that a little bit better so that you can, you can live this life with a positive, triumphant trust in Christ. And then if you're here and you've never made that approach to Jesus, there's never been that time where you said, you know what, I'm going to make my way to Jesus. I'm going I'm to put my trust in him and I'm going to follow him fully. And I'm going to follow him freely and I'm going to follow him forever. I don't care what anybody else does. He's won my heart and my trust. I hope that if you haven't made that decision, this might be the very day that you will. It's the greatest, most important, life-changing decision you will ever make. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about a little dose of religion. I'm talking about an everlasting, eternal relationship that will dynamically change you every day of your life forever with your creator. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for the stories, the endless stories of the good 
the amazing good that you bring to lives that will open themselves to you and trust you. May those stories multiply here today. I ask it in Christ's name.